This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Now, the Victorian College of the Arts is having a big year. They're celebrating 150 years, which is a curious thing because the VCA itself only opened in 1972. But there's some background and some history that kind of forms part of that conversation. Joining us in the studio to tell us a little bit more and specifically to talk about an exhibition called 9 by 5 Now, part of Art 150 at the VCA, curator Dr Elizabeth Gower. Welcome to Triple R. Hi. And uh, also one of the participating artists in 9x5 now, who will be familiar to listeners to this program, Ty Snaith. Hello, Ty. Hi, Richard. How are you going? Good. It's nice to have you in. Normally you're here reviewing other people's work, so today you get to talk a bit more about your own practice. Oh, that's fine. The whole reason you were invited on the show to be a critic in the first place was because you were a visual artist. So. Ah. Good. Thank yeah. you. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So, Elizabeth, let's talk about the 9 by 5 Now exhibition, which takes its name from a really significant exhibition of uh, impre- Australian Impressionist work held in 1889, in which people were painting on cigar lids, I understand, whose dimensions were 9 by 5 Yes, it was a very significant show because it was, uh, in, in some extent, one of the first artist-run initiatives that was organised by... Tom Roberts, Fred McCubbin, Arthur Streeton, C. Douglas Richardson, Charles Conda, and two current National Gallery students, Herbert Daly and Ari Halls. And the reason why I did the 9 by 5 now was because all those seven artists were National Gallery School alumni. And the National Gallery School is what? The, the, the National Gallery School is the sort of beginning of the VCA, and the VCA came out of the National Gallery School, the VCA um, Art School. Um, literally grew from the National Gallery School. It was located behind the um, National Gallery when they moved to St Kilda Road and when Lenton Pass started the VCA, it was the Foundation School. Okay. So that's where we get the 150 from. Cool. So <laughs> slightly fudging, <laughs> yeah, but, anyway. uh, but yeah, it, it's, a, it's a precursor. It's, it's a, uh, all those, that Melbourne history that then culminates in the the official foundation of the VCA and it reinforces that nothing happens in a vacuum, that there are always influences and echoes that help shape current events. Mm. So the 9 by 5 Now exhibition, does that mean that you've then gone, well, being inspired by that early exhibition of artists painting on cigar lids, what, so 9 inches by 5 inches? Yes, and when I found out that the seven artists were all alumni, plus the um, Lewis Abraham who supplied the cigar box lids was also an alumni, I thought, right, we're claiming this show. <laughs> this is a National Gallery School show. This um, is a VCA, you know, heritage show. And so the 9 by 5 Now show has 350 artists in it, which is a little bit more. Um, and they're all alumni, including the oldest um, artist, who is Helen Maudsley, who studied at the National Gallery School in the 1940s. And she's got a show coming up at the National Gallery later in the year. So it goes right back to then. Um, Peter Booth, Rick Moore, who studied in the 60s, Mickey Allen and uh, Susan Norrie, who studied in the sort of 70s. So it goes right through, say, from Helen Maudsley to the present. And one of those artists is you, Ty. When did you study at the VCA? Oh, um, it'll make me sound really old. Maybe people think that I'm still young, Richard. No, no, they don't. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I think I studied... Uh, well, I finished year 12 in 2008, so I studied from 2009... 
till 2000 and I don't know, whatever that is, 10, 11, 12, those three years. Yeah, so a while ago, but it was, I guess, not as long ago as Helen Maudsley. But can I point out that I curated a show with Ty in it? Remember the excess baggy <laughs> show, <Yes>. Ty? <laughs> that was pretty funny. I did, yes, I did a class with um, Elizabeth that was one of my favourite classes, which was, I think it was called Looking at Things Differently, and Elizabeth made us walk around and look at stuff on the ground, and one of the projects was we had to make a show or make a, a work with a plastic bag. And I think my work was the plastic bags day and it was like going to the movies and having popcorn and going to bed and trying to put a jumper on and it was quite cute. It was cute that you sort of got us to do that and we had a little exhibition of them. Elizabeth, how hard was it to uh, find artists who were happy to contribute to this exhibition? Uh, Not hard to find the happy ones, um, but what was hard is to find some of the um, ones who don't always use the internet. Like we've got um, Murray Walker who um, was employed by John Brack as one of the first um, lecturers in the new school and he doesn't use the internet. So, you know, it's kind of like hard to find some people. And Mark Clark, who is the first appointed head of sculpture, he also doesn't use the internet. So... They were the hard ones, but in terms of everyone else, I really just tracked them down. I'm a bit of a detective, Mm. and I'd find them eventually. And it seems like uh, people have responded generously with their time and the work, but also um, inventively, because I know the exhibition covers such a broad range of of forms and styles and media. Well, that's why it's called Now, because Now is uh, quite uh, diverse practices. The first 9 by 5 obviously, was Impressionism and painting. Um, but this one, it, it ranges from digital prints to uh, 3D works, relief things. Ty's <laughs> got a sort of a ceramic um, mm. work. So it's much more diverse in terms of the participants and in terms of the materials. There's even one that I've, I've got a little short list of ones that I like um, from just from looking at the catalogue, which I think is available online. You can look at the yes. whole catalogue online. Um, but Faye and De Evie's is quite different. It's, it's actually quarried rock. So it's, not, it's very far from painting, although kind of interestingly almost coming back to original paintings. It's called Author This, for in the beginning the women painted the caves in tactile poetics, quarried rock, pigment and engraving, but it's in the dimensions of 9 by 5 yep. And there are some that Meredith Turnbull's as well I really like that kind of uses the 9 by 5 as a base and then has a big disc that goes on the front of it and there are fewer, yep. there's like they're on a little prop or... Yes. Mm. There's a couple of 9 by 5 shelves with um, mm-hmm. objects on them and uh, some artists like Richard Lure has drilled holes through it and put text on it. There's quite a few text works as well. Uh, we've got a video and an iPhone as well ah. in the work, in the show. Ty, tell us about how you responded to this notion of 9 by 5 like originally mm. a, what, a plywood slab 9 inches by 5 inches. So yeah. that's the frame that you have to work in. Yeah. How did you react to that and what did you end up with? Well, I guess I'm one of those unusual artists where I love having I love having a brief. Um, lots of artists don't like having a brief, but I actually love having a brief. And so I basically just sat with this block, 9 by 5 block in my studio for... We got it nice and early, which was good. But um, just had it there in the studio for ages and so things sort of gathered around it and it was almost like it drew things to it and then um, I guess I got to the last bit where I really wanted to finish it and I looked around and thought what is the scale of it it's quite an unusual scale I guess to be working with it's quite small and 
not square. And so I'd been making um, a series of sort of works that had tiny bricks on them, like little tiny clay bricks that look a little bit like squashed bubblegum blocks, like they're rounded bricks. I don't know if that makes sense visually. Uh, and then I worked out that basically the width of the block was like five bricks across and that would fit perfectly. So I just... I think it's just through fiddling around I worked what worked out what would go on the block. And then also I wanted to sort of make... Um, I guess I wanted to sort of make a comment about my time at the VCA. So, uh, so obviously my work looks like a wall when you look at it. Um, uh, but then, I, yeah, I titled the work We Don't Need No Thought Control. So, you know, it's kind of an obvious reference to Pink Floyd's The Wall, but then also talking about... Um, what it is to be in an institution and how, I guess, VCA contributed to the way that I think and that is in a relatively free fashion. So mm. <laughs> that's that's pretty much the full circle of how the work evolved. Yeah. Um, I did have a few artists who struggled with the 9 by 5 <laughs> format and begged me for more than one board. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't allowed to. <laughs> um, because it's slightly more horizontal than it is... Vertical. Vertical. Mm. And so it's kind of just that little bit of a different proportion to today's kind of postcard kind of proportion. Mm. Um, it's tricky. It's just, yeah, it's, just a, it's, it's not actually that narrow, but when you first look at it, you think, mm. oh, it's just an odd shape. And I think it's also because so many of the younger, like the millennials and stuff, think in squares because of, you know, social media and Instagram. And yes. so that's actually, if you compare it to an Instagram square, it's very skinny. So that will totally do their head yes. in because you've yes. got to work out what's in the background. I yes. guess. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, did, did, is it true that Constance Zerkos used four boards? No, to, oh, it looks <laughs> it looks like it in the photo that they're four oh, joined right. together, but he split his. No, he just four. split it into oh, four. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, but there are some that, yeah, I think kind of when you look at the photograph of them, they look bigger. Uh, the one, the Lyndall Brown, the painting with who did she collaborate with? With Charles Green. Yeah, that one looks it like looks it could wider. be enormous. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes. No, they look they look quite. They're very intimate works. They're like little jewels, and when you mm. go up close, they're quite expansive once you get close yeah and it also i think as a fundraiser it's quite interesting because it makes you want to it makes me want to buy one at least one we were saying before i could easily buy 10 or 20 of these if i had a limp unlim um, um, limited um, funds. unlimited funds. Funds. so all the works are for sale <laughs> yes and the money goes towards creating a fellowship for a current uh, graduate so it is a little bit <clears throat> it's a very generous offer by the artist and also it shows that generational encouragement and support which is sort of you know historically happened in the 150 year celebration too where you get the older artists sort of nurturing and mentoring the younger one I mean even McCubbin in the first show was a lecturer at the time and Tom Roberts and Streeton and Richardson were all his hmm. um, students as well. And there, there are quite a lot of lecturers' works in this show as well, aren't there? Kate Dawes it's in there. It's staff and, and there. students, mm. and there's um, all you know five deans and heads of departments, and um, so it's not just mm. um, people who study there. Like I'm yeah. in it, and I never yeah. study there. Um, quite, a, but I've taught there for so many years. So it is, it's a whoever sort of 
put their foot through the door, really. I love um, Emily Floyd's work because she obviously didn't study there, but, you know, Emily Floyd's quite famous now, but hers just says, I went to RMIT, which is quite funny. (laughs) Well, she worked there for about six years, so she's She has a connection. I thought it was good, though. So it's a broad cross-section of people who've studied at, worked at or been connected with the VCA. Nine by Five Now is the name of the exhibition, part of Art 150 at the VCA. If you would like to learn more, you can uh, check out Nine Times Five Now, so 9x5now.com, where you can look at the catalogue. There's a video on there as well and samples of some of the work. The exhibition dates itself running from Friday the 16th of June until Sunday the 25th of June at Margaret Lawrence Gallery, 40 Dodd Street, South Bank. And uh, there's a lot of artists represented, as uh, as we heard from Elizabeth earlier. There's um, over 300. Well, 355, actually. Um, We've got, (laughs) say, about 300 um, actual works, but we've got a lot of collaborative groups like Mm. Constructed World and um, Slow Art Collective, so it comes to 355. I hope you have a lot of beer for tonight. (laughs) 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 But, you know, it'll run out when it runs out. It will. Yes, yes. (laughs) So thank you both for coming in. Pleasure. And Ty will catch you uh, next next week. Next week at about this time. I feel like I should be doing my highlights for the week now, but I'm not allowed to, am I? Next week. Thanks, Richard. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au. Every fortnight around this time, we have a segment called Shoot the Messenger. Normally, Fleur Kilpatrick joins us to talk uh, from an artist's perspective and myself from a critic's perspective about work we've seen on Melbourne stages. But Fleur has been down in Tasmania, uh, as as half of my friends seem to have been at Dark Mofo. Uh, and so instead, I thought rather than skip the segment for a week, because there's some interesting work on stages at the moment, I would ask a guest in. Cameron Woodhead is the chief theatre critic for The Age. Um, and he was in my mind because there was a... Um, um, I thought a, f- a great letter that was published in the the letters to the editors in the Age, um, uh, praising Cameron's review of Macbeth, the current MTC production. Uh, the role of the reviewer is fraught due to the anxious expectations of directors and theatre companies. Woodhead's beautiful form of words, without a hint of cons- of, of consention to uh, interested parties, constitutes fine journalism. That was Chris Marshall of Ascot Vale. Cameron, welcome to Triple R. Thank you, Richard. I think that's the nicest intro I've ever had. It's rare for critics to actually get that kind of praise, isn't it? Well, the the thing that um, I was chuffed about in that particular response uh, was that critics very rarely get praised at all, but um, they almost never get praised for sort of telling the truth. And uh, and that's the sort of... That kind of impartiality, that fearlessness... Um, that independence of thought is the, that's the thing that I value most about criticism because it, it actually costs the critic something um, to maintain that kind of independence you know, obviously there are all kinds of other good qualities that, that um, superior criticism will possess, you know uh, vivid writing knowledge, expertise uh, all of those things can are a, are a sort of combination of talent and skill, but you know, it's all pretty useless if you you don't um, 
you don't say what you think without fear or favour. Absolutely. And it can be challenging, particularly in a city like Melbourne where the arts ecology is so interconnected, that uh, one moment you're chatting with somebody over a drink in a foyer about uh, the, the work you've just seen the next week, you're critiquing their work. Yes, well, I mean, uh, the Melbourne theatre world is small, but theatre itself is a, a very social art form. Um, and as you say, it, it is interconnected. You need a lot of kind of people coming together to make theatre happen. Um, and the because it's small, you if you're an artist, you're... You know, you need to keep kind of options open and you can't necessarily say exactly what you think. So there's, um, I mean, the theatre tends to have a lot of, you know, moi, moi, darling, darling. Um, love the work, love yeah, the work yeah. without getting into detail about it. Yeah. Well, George Bernard Shaw used to kind of get around um, lying by kind of, you know, walking to people's dressing rooms when he didn't like something and saying, marvellous is not the word, <laughs> which at least has the, <laughs> the formal honesty. Um but yes, I mean, critics are supposed to cut through that and we're not supposed to be, um, you know, um, have any personal interest in uh, a work. I, w- I mean, I would never, for example, review one of my friend's uh, works. But that, that doesn't stop us kind of from, from socialising. I mean, we'd, we'd, we'd be pretty lonely if we didn't sort of socialise <laughs> and drink with artists in theatre. Yeah, It's just when you've got your critic hat on, you, you've got to disregard all of that. Yeah. Well, look, let's talk about a couple of the productions that are on at the moment. Uh, we'll, we'll look at the MTC's current production of Macbeth and also uh, The Moors, which is the current Red Stitch production. Let's start with that one because I haven't seen it and I'm in, uh, intrigued to know a little bit more about the production. Um, it's a sen- I'm, What I'm curious about is whether it's... Does it feel like a Red Stitch production? Or does it feel like a Little One's theatre production who, uh, given the the creative team involved? Well, I mean, it's sort of a match made in heaven. It feels like... um, It feels more like a Little One's theatre production, but, you know, you've got... um, You've got Red Stitch ensemble actors in there uh, and they do a very good job. It's uh, it's a very interesting work because... Uh, I read, after I'd written my review, I went and read the New York reviews of, of this particular show and a lot of them were quite critical. And I think one of the great things about this production is that it hits upon a kind of st- a style of performance full of kind of rather ch- uh, chiselled sort of artifice and, and high... Well, so not really high camp, capital C camp... Um, Camp doing uh, uh, camp has a very serious sort of sensibility, and I think you need, you sort of need that to make this work. It sort of does. Um, I mean, the show is about uh, it, it's not quite a parody. It's more an homage to the Bronte sisters, uh, you know, all that, that kind of you know untamed passion and kind of dark brooding gothic um, stuff from what, the 1830s, 1840s. Um, and it more or less does for Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre what, say, Rocky Horror did to Frankenstein. Um, it's weird, it's raunchy, it's it's kind of outright bizarre, it's very funny. Uh, and, you know, I, I got a real kick out of this show. 
And I haven't seen it yet, as I said, but I definitely want to get along because, I mean, directed by Stephen Nicolazzo, set in costumes by Eugene Tay, lighting by Katie Svetkidis. So that's the, the, the aesthetic team behind Little Ones Theatre who've been making some really camp and, and fascinating work in Melbourne over the last several years, including uh, their Oscar Wilde adaptation of The Little Prince, which was on at uh, La Mama at the start of the year. So, yeah, certainly a fascinating well, the, creative yeah, team. The Little Prince is probably... Um I mean, that, it's the closest to The Little Prince in terms of the unity of its, its aesthetic. Um, but, you know, obviously The Little Prince isn't funny. Um, <laughs> it's a rather kind of sad, sort of savage parable. Um, this, this actually has a parable in it with, with talking animals. I mean, it's sort of like Cathy and Heathcliff, except as a, you know, bull mastiff and a, a moorhen, and you can imagine how, how that love affair ends. Um, but... Most of it is not like that. And it's interesting, like, the different kind of styles of camp that it brings into it. You've sort of got, um, on, on the one hand, there are two sisters uh, who give kind of absolutely blazing classic um, Little Ones performances, absolutely committed to, to sort of artifice, kind of incandescently... Character is in, incandescently sort of one thing only. Um, and, and then you've got almost the opposite of... Um, the opposite of that uh, in Anna McCarthy's performance. Uh, she's a, a member of I'm Trying to Kiss You, the Feminist Theatre Collective with um, Zoe Dawson. And, um, that's almost kind of, you know, completely shambolic sort of, you know, post-feminist kind of... Oh, I, I'm a kind of, you know, like, I really care about writing. Read my diary. It's very vivid and upsetting, you know. Um, so that's very kind of low-key. Uh, it's, 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 it's got that tension in it. Um, I don't know that I should really reveal too much about the show because, no. because the delight of it is you go in and all kinds of weird stuff happens and um, you come out of it feeling like you've been transported somewhere rather odd. Well, it certainly sounds like a positive experience. So uh, that's uh, The Moors by Jen Silverman on, at the moment, uh, at Red Stitch Actors Theatre. More information at redstitch.net. And the season is running through until the 9th of July, so you've got plenty of time to see it. Now, the next production that Cameron and I are going to discuss, and if you've just tuned in, I've been joined as by special guest critic from uh, the Pages of the Age theatre critic Cameron Woodhead. Uh, the next production we're going to talk about is Macbeth, the current MTC production, directed uh, by Simon Phillips, the former artistic director of the company, who's since been, I guess, uh, focusing more on big-budget musicals and uh, uh, large-scale works, and so who's come back to the, co the company to direct... Uh, the Scottish play by Shakespeare, starring Australian-born Hollywood actor Jai Courtney in the title role. Now, Cameron and I have both written uh, reviews of this, uh, as have quite a few other critics, and it's unusual to see so much unison um, amongst critical responses. They're often quite diverse to works because we all see something quite different in productions. Yes, that's true. Uh, the critical consensus here is... Uh, as far as I'm aware, across the board. And the last time I saw this kind of critical consensus was, in fact, in the MTC's last production of Shakespeare, which was Queen Lear, and the, the kind of reviews for that were uniformly negative um, in more or less the same way. 
like so much so that they, you know, it actually made the news as a news story. You know. So, what was your take on this production of Macbeth? Well, I mean, I don't think it's as as bad as Queen Lear. It's, uh, I mean, Simon Phillips is a uh, he's an entertainer, isn't he? He um, this production is sort of, you know, visually lush. It kind of moves like a freight train. It's directed like an ac- an action movie in a kind of hammer horror film rolled into one. Um, I think if, you know, I were a, a 14-year-old boy seeing Shakespeare performed for the first time um, with not much experience of theatre, I'd be very taken by uh, the visual spectacle and the, the pace of it and the... You know, members of various members of the cast who handle the verse very well, but there's there's sort of um, there's a problem with this Macbeth, isn't there? there? For me, there's a couple of problems with it, and one is that the you mentioned the the action movie kind of vibe that it has, the Hollywood spectacle uh, uh, aesthetic that it has, and for me that detracts the sound design in particular uh, and the composition just felt very heavy-handed and in the same way that when a Hollywood movie can't successfully convey emotion, it relies on this insistent, over-the-top sound and composition to kind of ram the emotional message home and I felt that was happening a bit in this production. Uh, And I also felt that uh, our leading man was suitably convincing as a uh, kind of a powerful Scottish warrior and uh, and would be king, but I found him emotionally um, unconvincing. Well, is uh, Jai Courtney is certainly butch enough for Macbeth, and that's the thing that you normally don't get, um, just by virtue of the kinds of men who are attracted to um, acting. It's regarded as a quite a sort of feminised profession, I think, but. Um, that's not enough. I think uh, I say in my review that um, that Germain Greer once once called Macbeth the tragedy of a, a man who tries to kill his own soul and fails. And the, the the tragedy in Macbeth comes from the fact that Macbeth does not go mad. Um, Macbeth knows exactly kind of what he's doing, and he kind of makes makes the choice to do to do what he does. He embraces evil kind of reluctantly but voluntarily. It's a psychological struggle. Yeah. And we're not seeing that struggle, we're not feeling that struggle on stage in this production. Well, I think Jai, I mean, towards the end of this production, Jai is sort of, you know, a, a raving madman. Um, and I think that kind of... That's not really a viable interpretation of where Macbeth ends up. Um, you know, I don't think you can kind of go from, from sort of badass action hero to crazed supervillain and expect that to be what what Macbeth's really about. Um, I mean, the Macbeth's relationships to, to the witches is interesting, isn't it? You know, he... I mean, I think Macbeth knows that the, the witches are sort of bad news generally and, and particularly bad news for someone like him um, in much the same way that kind of deep down, you know poor Trump voters in America probably realised that that's the case with Donald Trump or kind of, you know, a gambling addict realises that a poker machine stands in that relation to him or her. Um, But nevertheless, he kind of becomes, you know, obsessed, compulsive um, with with relation to the sort of supernatural aspect of it. Um, He clings to to prophecy. Um, against his own interest. And, I mean, it's that kind of... 
that delusion, which he ultimately kind of sees through, that um, that creates the, the kind of psychological tension. There's also the fact that, you know, he's as close to a, a kind of Henry V figure as you could get while still turning into a kind of terrible villain and tyrant. There are some positives to this production of Macbeth as well, of course. No uh, play is... Um, I've, I've yet to see... Oh, maybe I've seen one or two productions that have been utterly unredeemable. But there are elements to this production I very much enjoyed. I really liked the, um, the, the set design, for example, which is there's some spectacular imagery that's been crafted in this production. It moves beautifully. Um, uh, so Sean Girton's set design is very striking. Lots of use of flame. It's kind of very striking lit as well. Esther Marie Hayes' costume design I thought was very strong. I had a couple of niggles with uh, some, a couple of the, the, the costumes. The, the fact that Lady Macbeth um, clad in red, yes, she stands out on this darkened stage and in the sombre tones of the work, but it also so clearly signals her as kind of an immoral woman from the get-go. Uh, it just felt a little bit too obvious. And I had an issue with the murderers being presented as, as essentially hoodie-wearing junkies. Um, and when they come on stage, there, there was laughter at opening night at, at their kind of abject state which rankled for me. There's something about a well-dressed, well-heeled opening night crowd laughing at kind of uh, representations of the Australian poor that grated for me. And I wondered why we weren't seeing them, for example, clad as mercenaries. Uh, this is set... This is a war zone-style uh, war against terror take on Macbeth to a large degree. Yeah, um, I mean, I wouldn't take anything from the fact that some kind of minority of people at the MTC opening night laughed. I mean, some of them will laugh at anything. Um, but I, I, I understand what you're saying. I think what he was aiming for was uh, um, getting in the sense that, you know, um, the witches and the murderers are sort of the 99% and Macbeth murders his way into the 1%. Um, I mean, I think that's what, what he was aiming for. But, I mean, you know, do, and, and I think that probably explains Lady Macbeth's kind of, you know, red carpet attire as well. Um, you know, she's sort of become a celebrity by the time they murdered their way to the, to the throne and I suppose there's a sense in which, um, you know, celebrities and billionaires are, you know the kind of the new royalty, the new aristocracy. But, I, I mean, it didn't really... It wasn't a coate kind of engagement with that, that sort of um, dynamic that's... Uh, and the rising social inequality that, that we've seen kind of progressively over the last couple of decades. And in terms of the sort of the terrorism, authoritarianism angle, I'd, I one of the problems I had with this Macbeth is that it, you don't... Um, various parts of, of the text are cut, and you probably shouldn't do that to Macbeth except for the, the sort of Hecate scene, which Shakespeare didn't write anyway and is, is a bit unnecessary and is usually cut. Um, because everything is there for a reason, you know. We, we get that image of the original Thane of Corda... Um, kind of facing death with sort of stoicism and dignity for a reason. Um, it adumbrates what happens to Macbeth at the end. Uh, you don't get the kind of sense of, of Duncan as a, as a good king, you know. He basically has kind of um, the Thane of Corda executed in a back room, you know, hooded. Um, 
he's a tyrant too, and then kind of there's no real sense that that Malcolm, the the king who will replace Macbeth, is in any way kind of better. Um, quite the opposite. The final image of the play is um, Banquo's unfluence, kind of um, rising up against Malcolm. So you, you you just get a sense of a world that that that's very Hobbesian, that's very dark. All humans are evil. Um, the world will continue to careen from kind of tyranny to tyranny and without some sense of the alignment of kind of power and virtue, um, what happens to Macbeth, most of the tragedy is leached out of that um, because, you know, what Macbeth does is a choice. Well, I've been joined by Cameron Woodhead for this particular segment of Shoot the Messenger. Cameron, thanks for coming in. Thanks, Richard. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au. My next guest has just joined us in the studio. David McAllister is the artistic director of the Australian Ballet and also responsible for a a lavish reimagining of The Sleeping Beauty, which premiered in 2015 and has an encore season this year. David, welcome back to Triple R. Thanks, Richard. So... It seems to be almost a tradition for artistic directors of the Australian Ballet to, to do a beauty at some point in their careers. <laughs> it seems that way. Yeah, it was weird, actually, because I, when I started in this job, I thought, I am never going to do a production. You know, it's like, I'm not going to do that because that's, you know, something that seems a little remote. And then, I don't know, it just seemed to happen and rather organically and... Sleeping Beauty is one of those ballets that, as you say, yes, Dame Peggy Van Prague, Mayna Gilgood, myself, we've all had a crack at it. Um, And it's one of those ballets that just lends itself to being sort of revised, I think, um, every 20 or so years because it's, um, it's so rich and it's so interesting and there's so many ways of looking at it. Given that it's, in many ways, I guess it's kind of part of the the core canon of familiar ballet work. So exactly. is there not also the risk then that it's too familiar to audiences? Um, yeah, look, I think that it is familiar. And funnily enough, that's one of the things that people love about it. They know that it's going to be um, one of those big Tchaikovsky ballets. Um, and in fact, in the past, we've you know, when we've done productions that sort of go too far away from the familiar they haven't been that successful so um i guess i was wanting to do this production very much to bring it back to that sort of familiar ground but also with a twist and and that's why i think working with gabriella tilasova was such a bonus because she's one of those designers that can make something look incredibly classic as if you've seen it before but completely new and she's certainly an incredibly versatile designer in (laughs) terms of stage i mean she's done opera theater kind of huge musicals musicals. yeah Yeah. and she was my number one pick and i actually thought there's no way she's going to be able to do this because you know she's all around the world doing, you know, amazing things. And she said yes, so that was a real bonus. Now, as I said, it's a lavish production. <laughs> I understand back in 2014-15 uh, you raised $1.8 million from donors to we the company did. to we ensure did. the work could be staged. For the very first time, actually, we asked, we went to our sort of supporters and said, would you like to be a part of this? And they did in great numbers. And um, it was an incredible, I think, support to all of us in the creative area to know that people were that interested in this work to really get behind it. And, um, and it, it made it 
the lavish workers because, you know, in our normal sort of budgeting cycle, there was no way it was going to be that opulent. <laughs> Is it there the risk in staging an opulent work like this that you end up or risk alienating people, that you reinforce some of the negative stereotypes that people have about ballet, that it is highbrow, overly mm. expensive, extravagant and uh, and off-putting for some people? I think that's one of the things that Gabrielle and I definitely wanted not to do um, because I think there's a difference between highbrow and beautiful... <laughs> And we really wanted this to be beautiful and appeal to the broadest audience and to make... My my big aim was to make a production which anyone who's never seen a ballet could come along and understand what was going on because, you know, so much of that implied knowledge about ballet that, you know, there's certain gestures that people sort of do that you expect everyone knows that means love or or death or something like that. So we really... I worked with um, Lucas Jervis, who um, was the dramaturg on the show, to really try and make it really clear and very obvious to people who'd never seen a ballet what was actually going on. So, so stripping out some of that tr- traditional gestural ballet yeah, mind? Yeah, absolutely. And finding other ways of doing it, but to make it like very... Instead of, you know, doing a very big gesture about the, you know, the heart, you know, you put your hand on the heart so that people know, oh, she's asking about whether he's in love. You know, things that that we thought might just unlock some of that sort of special knowledge. And... You've also created some additional choreography for this yeah. production as well. Tell us about that because you're you're toying with a, with kind of a, such master. a classic work. Yeah. That, yeah. Exactly. Look, I th- I felt that I wanted it to be shorter. That was another thing that we... I mean, the original ballet goes for four hours, which is wonderful, but, you know, back in the day when you didn't have, you know, 7.30 in the morning breakfast meetings, you know, it was fine to be able to be at the theatre till 12. So we, we cut it down, and in doing so, you know, it felt like I needed to make linking passages to, to bring it all together. And there was in the original production a lot of um, what they call sort of... Um, mise-en-scene, where, you know, people just basically walked around in lavish costumes sort of setting a scene. So I sort of went, okay, well, I really like that music, but let's give them something to do rather than just walking, parading. So, um, yeah, so I got two in my lounge room and worked out a few steps and put them in. Okay. Well, it certainly seems to have worked because uh, my former editor at Arts Hub, Deborah Stone, for example, described it as a a gorgeous presentation of a grand ballet and gave it five stars. So uh, she was certainly very fond of it. Uh, And it's, it's obviously had enough of a a warm response from people that you felt you could risk bringing it back. Yeah, well, we it pretty much sold out in both Melbourne and Sydney when we did it last time. And so, and there was a lot of, you know, email traffic and, you know, even some letters and, and a lot of feedback to us that, you know, people missed out. And so they really, and a lot of people said, you know, I want to see it again. So we thought, okay, we'll let the audience tell us what we what they want. And so we brought it back pretty quick. Now, why only bring it back to Sydney and Melbourne as opposed to mounting it, for example, in Brisbane or in Adelaide where yeah. people don't get to see the company's work as often? Well, we did actually do it in Brisbane at the beginning of the year, which was great. Oh, okay. And we were taking it to Adelaide as well this year, but um, the Adelaide Festival Theatre is closed for renovation, so that was a last-minute sort of decision. So so we're actually going to take it to Adelaide um, in 
in the future. In the future, in the very let's, near future. Let's not um, lock down a date. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But so, so, yes, it was sort of locked in for a national tour because we did it in Perth in the original season. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, hopefully by the end of next year we'll have it all around the country. What was the response in Brisbane at the start of the year? It was great, yeah. We, we did actually more shows than we've ever done and sold more tickets than we ever did. So it is, I don't know, it's one of those titles that people seem to, you know, fall in love with. So, um, it, And I've got to say, the work that... Gabriella and the company did to make it look so beautiful, um, both you know dancing and um, and visually. I think it's it's a great draw card for people who've never seen a, a grand ballet before. Is this the show that they should go and see? Well, look, I think it's certainly. I mean, this and Swan Lake and Nutcracker are the three big you know ballets that one should have on their bucket list. And um, and I think that. The Sleeping Beauty has got such extraordinary music, and it is a story that everyone knows. So it's it's very easy to you know to to watch and enjoy. I think the Australian Ballet's production of The Sleeping Beauty is on from the sixteenth of June until the twenty seventh of June at Art Centre Melbourne in the State Theatre. You can book at australianballet.com.au, and if you're streaming us from interstate, then heads to Sydney. Uh, uh, from the 11th to the 25th of November, a bit later in the year, at the Capitol Theatre. Bookings, as I said, at australianballet.com.au in that Melbourne season from the 16th until the 27th of June at Art Centre Melbourne in the State Theatre. We've been talking with David McAllister, the Artistic Director of the Australian Ballet. David, many thanks for joining us here at Triple Great pleasure. Thanks, Richard. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.